The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It's Wednesday, April 6th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, some libraries cancel late fees. Others get Interpol involved for missing manuscripts. Either way, missing books can become fascinating treasures when they're finally returned. Plus, Hubble has spotted a rare planet in the earliest phase of formation. And the United Kingdom has announced plans to mint its own NFT. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. More and more public library systems have been canceling late fees. Borrowers will no longer be charged for overdue books, and any pre-existing balances were wiped out. It's a policy that many librarians advocate for, saying it boosts visitors to the libraries and reinforces the equitable access that public libraries are meant to provide. Since New York Public Library ended their late fees last fall, they've seen that hypothesized boost in visitors, saying they've seen an increase of 9 to 15% across the boroughs. But they've also seen a ton of books returned, some that were checked out years, even decades ago. Across the five boroughs from when late fees were canceled through February, more than 88,000 overdue items were returned. The New York Times highlighted some particularly interesting returns, including three DVD copies of The Boondock Saints 2, which were returned to three different library branches, a novella by James Hilton that was checked out in 1970, another returned book that was checked out in 1965, and one 75-year-old woman returned a whole box of books with a note saying that she's had these for between 28 to 50 years. Now, late fees, which NYPL implemented back in the 19th century, didn't accrue forever, so it's not like some of these folks would have owed hundreds of dollars, but once you got to $15 in late fees, you weren't allowed to check out materials anymore. The biggest reason that people held onto them was often shame. You know, a lot are being returned fairly anonymously by mail or drop-off. And NYPL isn't the only library system to cancel fees. Nashville, Chicago, Dallas, and San Francisco all canceled late fees in the years before the pandemic. My local library system in Queens canceled late fees around the same time as NYPL, although I did learn this week that they do still send overdue notices. I'm not typically someone who returns books late, but in my defense, they shut down my branch, so returning them to another branch has been a bit complicated. But anyways, the reason I bring this up is because I love hearing about all of these old books that people checked out decades ago. You know, that novella that was checked out in 1970 was checked out from a branch that doesn't even exist anymore. And even when patrons have tried to remain anonymous when returning their books, some do leave notes, and even just the return of the book itself feels like a story. You know, one with plenty of room for imagination, but a fascinating story nonetheless. And across the pond in Cambridge, England, the university's library there got a similar surprise last month. 
But the anonymous return was a much bigger deal than some old copies of the Boondock Saints sequel. Someone returned two of Charles Darwin's notebooks that have been missing for over 20 years. Though they'd been missing since 2001, it was only 15 months ago that the university launched a global appeal to locate the notebooks in partnership with the local police, antique book experts, and Interpol. It could be that last one that pushed the person possessing the notebooks to finally return them, which they did anonymously and without any other explanation save a note reading, Librarian, Happy Easter. The notebooks were secured in cling wrap inside of a box, which was delivered to the floor outside the librarian's office inside of a hot pink gift bag. Cambridge University librarian Dr. Jessica Gardner reports that the notebooks are in good condition with no obvious sign of damage or significant handling. Whoever returned them, however, may not be getting off scot-free. The police continue to investigate both the circumstances of the book's disappearance and their return. The library seems to be rather happy enough, though. The notebooks will be on display this summer as part of a new exhibition called Darwin in Conversation. And the notebooks will not be alone in that exhibition. The Cambridge University Library has a full Darwin archive consisting of 189 archive boxes. And with so many Darwin artifacts in their collection, why did these two small note card-sized notebooks' disappearance cause such alarm? Mostly because they contain Darwin's original sketch of his famous Tree of Life. He sketched it in one of the notebooks 20 years before publishing On the Origin of Species, in which he would expand on this metaphor for evolution. Quoting NBC News, The notebooks are known in evolutionary biology as the transmutation notebooks, as they are considered the first point at which Darwin came up with the theory of how species could transmute or adapt and change through generations. End quote. The notebooks were removed from one of the library's special collection rooms in September of 2000 to be photographed, but when a routine check was conducted four months later, it was discovered that the notebooks had never been returned. And for about 20 years, staff assumed that they'd just been misplaced within the library somewhere. Fairly understandable considering there are over 10 million items in the library. But after an in-depth search in 2020, the largest search in the library's history and which included fingerprint examinations and consultations with experts in cultural heritage, theft, and recovery, Dr. Gardner determined the notebooks had indeed been stolen, leading to the launch of the investigation. But now, the notebooks are back home and ready for their debut in the new exhibition, which the library notes will, quote, "...dispel the myth of Charles Darwin as a lone theoretician sitting in Downhouse." Experiments and interaction with a wide range of people were key to his world-changing discoveries and theories, and the exhibition reveals Darwin as a complex individual whose ideas changed over time, informed as much by the frustrations of failure as the triumphs of success, end quote. Dr. Gardner can certainly consider the case of the lost notebooks a triumph, but I do wonder if we'll ever get the story behind their disappearance. What adventures have these notebooks been on for the past 20 years? You know, as I said, Sometimes the story of the physical book itself is just as interesting as the one told by the words on its pages. Thanks to the orbiting Hubble Space Telescope and Earthbound Subaru Telescope, we're getting a chance to see a planet forming in real time, and this particular one is lending credence to a long-debated theory about how planets of this type, specifically Jupiter-like gas giants, actually form. 
This baby exoplanet, which is called AB Origae B, because it orbits the star AB Origae, represents the earliest stage of formation ever observed for a gas giant. Thane Curry, lead author of the study published Monday, called it, quote, very early on in its birthing process, end quote. And from The Guardian, quote, It's embedded in an expansive disk of gas and dust that bears the material that forms planets and surrounds the star AB Origae. It lies 508 light years from the Earth. The star had a fleeting moment of fame when its image appeared in a scene in the 2021 film Don't Look Up. About 5,000 planets beyond our solar system, or exoplanets, have been identified. This one is among the largest. It's approaching the maximum size to be classified as a planet rather than a brown dwarf, a body intermediate between planet and star. It's heated by gas and dust falling into it. End quote. And some more stats from astronomer Phil Plate, who worked on the 1999 Hubble observations of the star AB Origae, writing in his column at Sci-Fi Wire, quote, Using theoretical models, the best fit the astronomers got was for a young planet about nine times Jupiter's mass, 2.75 times its diameter. Pretty big, but that's because it's still forming and hasn't settled down yet. And with a temperature of about 2,000 degrees Celsius, super hot, but again, that's expected. That matches an accretion rate, how quickly matter is falling on it, of about a millionth of Jupiter's mass every year. Now that may not sound like much, but Jupiter is a beast. That accretion rate is equal to 5,000 trillion tons per day. That's 66 billion tons per second. Per second. That's like a four-kilometer-wide asteroid, roughly half the diameter of the dinosaur killer, impacting the protoplanet every single second of every day of every year for hundreds of thousands of years. No wonder it's glowing hot. Now, having said all this, this isn't conclusive proof it really is an accreting protoplanet, but it's pretty dang convincing evidence. End quote. Now, what's most exciting to NASA and the authors of the newly published paper is that this protoplanet could be evidence of the disk instability theory of planetary formation, which stands in contrast to the more commonly accepted accretion model. Quoting NASA, All planets are made from material that originated in a circumstellar disk. The dominant theory for Jovian planet formation is called core accretion, a bottom-up approach where planets embedded in the disk grow from small objects, with sizes ranging from dust grains to boulders, colliding and sticking together as they orbit a star. This core then slowly accumulates gas from the disk— in contrast, the disk instability approach is a top-down model, where as a massive disk around a star cools, gravity causes the disk to rapidly break up into one or more planet mass fragments. The newly forming planet, AB Origae B, is probably about nine times more massive than Jupiter and orbits its host star at a whopping distance of 8.6 billion miles over two times farther than Pluto is from our Sun. At that distance, it would take a very long time, if ever, for a Jupiter-sized planet to form by core accretion. This leads researchers to conclude that the disk instability has enabled this planet to form at such a great distance, and it's in striking contrast to expectations of planet formation by the widely accepted core accretion model. 
Alan Voss of the Carnegie Institute of Science emphasized, in the end, gravity is all that counts, as the leftovers of the star formation process will end up being pulled together by gravity to form planets one way or the other. Continuing again from NASA, understanding the early days of the formation of Jupiter-like planets provides astronomers with more context into the history of our own solar system. This discovery paves the way for future studies of the chemical makeup of protoplanetary disks like AB Origae. End quote. And these findings were only possible thanks to a collaboration between both the Hubble and the Subaru telescopes and 13 years worth of archival observations, plus a little bit of luck from nature. And while the new James Webb Space Telescope will help us observe so many more exoplanets and all kinds of discoveries, it's always cool to remember just how many things have to go right for even one discovery, and therefore just how much else is out there that we have absolutely no idea about. The United Kingdom has just announced that it will mint its own NFT this summer in hopes of becoming a world leader on the cryptocurrency stage. This is part of a slew of steps announced by City Minister John Glenn at a recent fintech event. Other steps include, quoting CNBC, bring stable coins within the UK's existing regulations on electronic payments, consult on a world-leading regime for regulating trade in other cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, ask the Law Commission to consider the legal status of blockchain-based communities known as decentralized autonomous organizations, examine the tax treatment of decentralized finance loans, and staking, which gives crypto users the ability to earn interest on their savings, establish a crypto asset engagement group that will be chaired by ministers and host members from UK regulators and crypto businesses, and explore the application of blockchain technology in issuing debt instruments." End quote. And Chancellor of the Exchequer Rishi Sunak said, quote, "...it's my ambition to make the UK a global hub for crypto asset technology, and the measures we've outlined today will help to ensure firms can invest, innovate, and scale up in this country. We want to see the businesses of tomorrow and the jobs they create here in the UK, and by regulating effectively, we can give them the confidence they need to think and invest long term. This is part of our plan to ensure the UK financial services industry is always at the forefront of technology and innovation, end quote. It's an interesting move, especially as the UK's Financial Conduct Authority recently turned down a bunch of crypto firms who had applied for authorization. CNBC describes British regulators as taking a harsh tone on digital assets, at least on the ones they haven't created or can easily control. From The Guardian, quote, The Treasury's announcement did not specify what image or object the Royal Mint's NFT would confer ownership of, whether more would be created, nor whether NFTs would be used to generate funds for the Exchequer. A Treasury spokesman said more details would be announced soon. The decision to launch an NFT is likely to raise eyebrows at a time when more than a million people in Britain are expected to fall into poverty this year after Sunak did not do more in his spring statement to cushion the poorest in society from soaring living costs as inflation hits the highest level in three decades. The rise of NFTs has also led to a spate of scams and have become the target for hackers losing consumers vast sums, end quote. So clearly there are some skeptics, but the UK is hardly alone among governments dipping their toes into cryptocurrency. El Salvador made Bitcoin legal tender last fall. Ukraine said that it would issue NFTs to help pay for its military. And the US recently announced moves towards regulating crypto and possibly implementing a digital dollar. 
It's a fast-moving sector to be keeping your eye on for sure. And while Britain has interpreted that to mean they need to jump in now if they hope to lead the way, others are seeing the hallmarks of a speculative bubble and trying to stay out of it. For what it's worth, the global NFT market jumped from $100 million in 2020 to $25.5 billion last year. Continuing with HBO Max's uh, unique choices for prequels and spin-off series, they've just announced their intentions to make two Sherlock Holmes spin-offs. Specifically, they're talking in the Robert Downey Jr. Jude Law universe of Sherlock Holmes, but neither series would star Downey or Law, and I don't mean that the lead characters would be recast. No, neither series will be about Holmes or Watson. So basically, it's just a vaguely mysterious steampunk procedural. AV Club notes that the shows could be based on Irene Adler, Mycroft, or Moriarty, who were all introduced in the film duology. Or maybe it could follow the Baker Street Irregulars, the boys employed by Holmes as intelligence agents in a couple of the stories. That could actually be a pretty cool series. I'd be into that. Or maybe HBO Max is trying to get as original as possible to avoid the inevitable long arm of the Doyle estate. We shall see how this develops, but that is it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.